Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our boast is not in us, but in you. We thank you that it really was your wounds that paid our ransom. And as we gather here, we recognize that we gather as people who are pressed and wounded and broken. And if many of us are honest, sometimes feeling like we don't have hope. When we think about the trials and the afflictions that we're facing in the world today, Father, it is very easy to get discouraged, very easy to lose heart, and for our faith to waver. And so, Father, we ask that in this time now, as we come to your word, that you would make up for what is lacking in us, that you would make Christ great for us, and that as we come to your word, that your spirit would open up our eyes to the glorious realities in your word, that our confidence may be sure. We ask for these things in Christ's name. Amen. If we have, if you have a Bible this morning, and I hope you do, please open up to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is the fifth to last book of the Old Testament. If you have one of, if you don't have a Bible, but you see one of these around you, you can find it on page 738. So if you don't have a Bible, grab one of these, 738. Habakkuk is a bit of a small book, so if you're a breezer through the Bible as you're opening up, you also can go to Matthew and go back five books, and that's a good way to find it. As we think about this morning, we'll be considering Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. And as we again return to Habakkuk, it's important to remember that Habakkuk is a book that is most fundamentally about faith. It's a book about faith. You could subtitle the book of Habakkuk, Faith in the Face of Affliction. So for God's people, and for those who claim to be Christians, how do we, those who believe this theology of a great God, of those who believe God's promises of salvation for those who trust in Christ, how do we as Christians have faith in the face of affliction, in the face of trials, in the face of suffering? Now, this is a pretty important topic for us to talk about right now. If you look back at everything that's happened in the year 2020, let's just take a moment and think about everything that's consumed your mind over the last few months. Take a second to think also about what you may fear about the future. What realities are you really hoping don't become true? In light of the times we find ourselves in, what does it look like for God's people to have faith? How does our theology and our belief in the gospel transfer into this life where we actually believe and trust with what we face? Now, up until this point, we've actually spent the most of our time in Habakkuk just analyzing ourselves. If you think about it, we've spent our time thinking about what changes we need to make in our lives if we're going to have faith. So as a bit of a running introduction, we've talked about how we actually need to address God with our problems. We've talked about we need to embrace God's sovereignty. We've talked about how we need to examine the idols in our hearts. All of these things which actually stuff out any faith within us and hinder our ability to trust in God. But at the same time, there's actually an issue we haven't faced yet in Habakkuk. We spend a lot of time thinking about our hearts and our beliefs, but how do we actually process the suffering and the afflictions that we may face? What are we to think about affliction or trials or persecution? 
in this world, we need to recognize that people will harm us. People will take advantage of us. People will seek evil against us. People will try to exploit us. How do we process these realities? Now, we have been preparing our hearts to respond in faith, but now we need to wrestle with the challenging realities of injustice and pain and suffering in a fallen world. You can believe God's sovereignty. You can uproot pride in your heart. But pain is still painful. Injustice is still unjust. And suffering is never fun. Right? So we've spent the last few weeks preparing our hearts to exercise godly faith. Now we're going to think about the afflictions and the trials that we may face. What are we to think about the Babylonians, as we've been talking about? What do we think about the wicked in Judah? How do we respond when the storm clouds of life come in? And for that, let me give you another step in cultivating faith in the face of affliction. If you've been tracking with us the last few weeks, I've given you three steps. First, you must address God, and then you must embrace God. We've talked about those in previous sermons. And then the last one, we talked about examining your heart. If you want to cultivate faith, you need to examine your heart. And fourth, if you want to cultivate faith in the face of affliction, you must reassess your concerns. Reassess your concerns. Because in this passage today, God helps Habakkuk, God helps the righteous remnant of Israel, and he helps us reassess the challenges that we may face, which want to challenge our faith. And to help us grasp this reality, God brings us to a funeral. In Habakkuk 2.3, if you remember from last week, God tells Habakkuk to write down a vision that has to do with the Babylonian invasion. Now, that we use that to talk about how God's promises are certain, but our text today is actually the vision that God told Habakkuk to write down in Habakkuk 2.3. And this text is, our, is that vision. The most surprising element of our text today is going to actually be who the funeral is for. With God's promise to wipe out the Babylonians, or for the Babylonians to wipe out God's people, who do you think that the funeral would be for? Would it be for Habakkuk? Would it be for the people of Judah? Maybe a person who represents Judah? The king of Judah? But it's actually for none of those people. Despite the fact that the Babylonians are going to come destroy Judah, the funeral is not for the people of Judah, it's not for the remnant, and it's not even for Habakkuk. The funeral is actually for the Babylonians. It is for the wicked who are coming to invade Judah. We pick up this idea in verse 5 of, of chapter 2. In Habakkuk 2.5, God tells Habakkuk not to worry about the, the Babylonians since their glory and their conquest will be short-lived. We talked about this a little bit last week. If you look in verse 5 before we get to our text, he says, Moreover, wine is a traitor. This glory that they're seeking is going to be quite short-lived. And then God makes this comment about the Babylonians at the end of verse 5. He gathers for himself all the nations and collects as his own all the peoples. And then in verse 6 it says, shall not all these. The shall not all these are the main characters in our passage today. 
So you have to ask the question, who are these shall not all these? The shall not all these in our text today are the people that the Babylonians wanted to oppress. They wanted to subjugate. They are the conquered peoples of the Babylonians. And in verse 6 for our passage, it's actually these conquered and these subjected peoples who are the main speakers of our text. And they are now attending the funeral of their previous oppressors. In this great reversal, the Babylonians came to destroy God's people, but then God's people are left standing, and they are mocking. Verse 6, Shall not all these take up their taunts against him with scoffing and riddles against him? These former victims in our text are taunting their oppressors. They are offering scoffs and they're offering riddles. Why? Because the Babylonians thought that they would evade justice for their actions. They were just planning on conquering nation after nation after nation with no repercussions. But God had different plans. And one day, God would bring back justice upon the Babylonians. God, just, God's justice would find the Babylonians, and those whom the Babylonians thought to oppress would be vindicated. In our text this morning, these, uh, these previous oppressed people, they actually offer a series of woes. And that's the main section of our text today. You may think of the word woe as like a, a sober or a morbid warning, like a woe to you, like a, maybe like a Monty, Monty Python woe. But it's actually more like a mocking laugh, like an ah, <laughs> ah, woe to you. The Babylonians thought that they had successfully evaded any repercussions for their actions. But in this funeral, the Babylonians' former victims are now looking over their destructed enemies, and they're taunting them. Ah, those Babylonians, they thought that they were so powerful. But let's look at how things ended up. But do you know what this is then? This passage actually gives us amazing comfort. God told Habakkuk, that the Babylonians were going to enact all of this great evil and suffering against God's people. And then literally in the next section, God looks past the Babylonians to show when God has settled the score. In our text, we see God executing judgment on the Babylonians and vindicating the people the Babylonians sought to oppress. So if you're a Christian, do you know what this means that this text is for us? If you are a Christian and you are facing potential affliction, which is real and suffering, then this text gives you a picture of you one day standing over and gloating those who may seek to harm you now. And I hope that you see that this passage is actually very helpful for cultivating faith in the face of affliction. Christian, reassess the potential threats which may come against you. No matter what may come, no matter what you may face, you can take comfort in this fact that God promises to execute perfect justice against any injustice someone may try to bring against you. 
we're going to flesh out this idea in the series of five woes. In each of these woes, we see God's plan to execute justice in a different circumstance. And to help us walk through this passage, let me give you a main idea that you can walk through and keep in the back of your mind. Here's the main idea for the book of Habakkuk. Christian, reassess, sorry, not just Habakkuk, just this passage. Christian, reassess your concern by remembering God's promise to execute perfect justice. Christian, reassess your concerns by remembering God's promise to execute perfect justice. I'm going to break up these five woes into three groups. First, we're going to look at the first three woes. Then we're going to look at the fourth woe and then the fifth woe on their own. So our first point, each of our points are going to add on to this main idea that we have. The main point is Christian, reassess your concerns by remembering God's promise to execute perfect justice. Point one, against every act of injustice. First, the first main, if you're trying to fill in the blanks, the first one is injustice. Now, these first three woes describe three different forms of injustice committed against God's people. In this Babylonian horde, God draws out three unjust scenarios that God is going to execute judgment against. Now, each one of these scenarios actually address the Babylonians' covetous desires for gain. The main motivation behind the Babylonians' pillaging and plundering was just to get rich. They wanted to increase their power. The idolatrous lust of driving the Babylonians was a desire for property and for wealth and for ease and luxury and power. Their eyes were set on whatever they could gain from the nations around them, like Judah. The first woe, which is between verses 6 and 8, reminds us that God will bring justice for every institutional injustice. Every institutional injustice. Read verses 6 through 8 with me. Shall not all these take up their taunts against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who weeps up which is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. In the first woe, we actually see this merry band of survivors casting this woe against those who heap up what is not their own. This hymn is referring to the hymn who the woe is cast against is referring to a group of people or a nation. If you look at verse 8, he says this hymn is plundering nations and peoples. So unless this, this hymn was Chuck Norris and he was just roundhouse kicking people, this hymn is probably a nation. This hymn most likely either refers to the people of Israel that we've already seen in Habakkuk who are exploiting the righteous. The hymn could also be the Babylonians. But this hymn also would apply to anyone who exploits the poor and the vulnerable among God's people for their own personal gain. In this woe, this taunting group mocks the Babylonians because they thought that they could just get away with exploiting nation after nation after nation for personal gain. The Babylonians thought that their strength and their size would literally shield them 
from the repercussions of pillaging and plundering the smaller nations around them. In verses 7 through 8, though, we actually see the great reversal. Those who plunder find themselves plundered. Verses 7 and 8 again. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled to them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Now it's important to note here that this execution of justice with this one nation rising up against the other, those who were plundering found themselves plundered, that this isn't just some act of blind chance. It's not some blind forces working in the world. It's actually an act of God's providence because God tells us why they found themselves in the situation. In verse 8, it is for the blood of man and the violence to the earth. And I think at this point, God is actually jabbing back at a comment that Habakkuk made earlier. If you guys remember in Habakkuk 1, remember when, God, when Habakkuk looked at God and say, is this just like the animal kingdom? Is there justice in the land? Is everyone just going to keep killing and killing? And God says here, no, it's not like that. There actually is justice. There is a God who will bring back justice on the earth. And we can draw out a helpful conclusion from this section then that when we will sometimes see a nation or a people who actually are subjected and oppressed revolt against their rulers. And this reality actually points to God's sovereignty and justice in bringing back upon a group of people their own sins. Proverbs 11.31 is a good example of where we see this principle. If righteousness is repaid on the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? So that's our first form of injustice, that God promises to bring back justice against every institutional injustice. Second woe. The second woe narrows in on personal injustice. We find this in verses 9 through 11. Let's read our text. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beams from which from the woodwork respond. In this passage, we actually see Habakkuk's vision narrow in on a specific individual. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 and 8 focus on this nation who's plundering other nations. In our text, it narrows in on a particular, maybe a Babylonian soldier or a Babylonian general. That this description would fit anyone who's committing injustice against Israel. This person returns home, then he uses his spoil and everything that he would get to build this new and improved life for himself. The war veteran comes home and uses his spoils to now live a life of luxury. In this picture, we see a man using his new capital to construct a house that's so protected that, as it says, it is out of reach. It is set on high, out of reach to those who may seek retribution. And sadly, this picture just explains the fact that there are many people who pursue injustice just for personal gain and profit. I mean, if you really want to raise up an army, and this happens through most of history, you just grab a bunch of guys and you say, who wants to go break some stuff, right? And then you'll be rich. Let's go, right? That's the Crusades. Ah, let's make some money. 
right? But then these people will use their new wealth for self-preservation. They will build fences and gates to keep what they have taken safe. So for example, imagine maybe a Jewish man who watches in the conquest of Jerusalem and Babylonian soldiers seize some of his most prized possessions. Then this man actually ends up in that Babylonian soldier city. And one day, the Jewish man actually sees his own property in someone else's home. But he knows because of how the board is set that he is completely powerless to get what was once his own. But I hope that this passage provides some comfort to you because God ensures that even personal acts of injustice will not be left unresolved. God says that this soldier has actually forfeited his life because of his greed. Because if you build your life upon unjust practices where you exploit others and as he says you get evil gain, then your life actually becomes an entire testimony against you. This is the image of this man's house literally bearing witness against him. You know, he may want to forget his unjust past, maybe years in the past, but one day God will call him to account for his actions. And if there are no witnesses there, God will literally call upon the woodworks and the stones because they remember. I think this is one of the reasons why, as Christians, we're just called not to be envious of the rich. Because if you think about maybe some of the lifestyles that you would like to project for yourself, reaching that level may cause, may require for you at some level some sin, whether it's lying or theft or backbiting or this ruthless ambition that puts yourself above others. And take comfort in this, that if someone actually gets rich and constructs their life at your expense, then God knows. We learn that from this passage. In Habakkuk 2, verses 12 through 14, we see a third type of injustice addressed. I would say this is local injustice. Habakkuk 2, 12 through 14. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and the nations weary themselves for nothing? For the knowledge, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We see this third woe cast against a city, a place that has been built upon oppression upon the backs of other human beings, upon the mistreatment of others. The Babylonians would have imported the gold and the goods and the property and the free slaves into their major cities. These cities grew in ways that were entirely dependent upon the exploitation of others. This woe then would apply to any city or town which derives its wealth from unjust practices or gains. Could be things like exploiting the poor in the city, or unfair taxes, or being built upon unjust wages. Maybe it's, it's industries like human slavery, or prostitution, or selling illegal goods. In this situation, it would have been very easy for the city's residents just to forget everything that happened in the past. They just enjoyed what they saw, and they didn't pay any attention to what had happened. The Judean slaves would have been kept out of view second-class citizens within the empire. 
Or the Babylonians would see the Judean captives and they'd remember their greatness. Every Judean captive was a sign of, oh, we conquered them, and we conquered them, and we conquered them. The future generations of the Babylonians may have long forgotten the people who actually built their empire, but this passage tells us that God knew. God remembered. And God's people can have hope that God remembers and justice will come. Like the people of Israel, remember their initial slavery in Egypt? God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Take a look at Habakkuk 2.13. God says that those who labor to build cities founded upon injustice, they're just building it for fire. They are wearying themselves for nothing. Then God says in Habakkuk 2.14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. That's an interesting connection. What's the relationship between the knowledge of the glory of God and these cities being built on injustice? But we know as Christians that Christ will return and execute perfect justice against his enemies. At that point, when Christ comes, our faith will be made sight. In Christ appearing, literally the earth will be filled with the knowledge of Jesus and of his glory. So one day, the earth will be filled with this knowledge of the glory of God's righteousness and of his justice. But then on that day, God's righteousness and justice will come face to face with these cities. Right? That knowledge will extend and these cities will all of a sudden be caught in a trap because they were built upon injustice and oppression and this is what the knowledge of the Lord does. Christ will judge. Even in Revelation 18, as I read earlier, we see a foretaste of this with the great prostitute whose name is Babylon. Here, she represents in this picture every city in rebellion against God. In Revelation 18, verses 5 through 6, For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has, what? Remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she has paid back others. Pay her back double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. If the earth is to be filled with the knowledge of God's glory, then cities like this one and the cities that the Babylonians want to build have a very unfortunate date set with God's justice. And in that sense, what the Babylonians are doing is futile. For every city that commits this type of injustice is set for judgment on the last day. So those are three woes for you against institutional injustice, against personal injustice, and then against civil or city injustice, local injustice. All right, so how does this help our faith? How does knowing the fact that God is going to bring perfect justice in this way help our faith? Well, for many people, maybe, maybe for you, your trust in God is hindered by this reality that you may have experienced pain 
and you may have experienced suffering at the hands of others. Now just think about the fears that a lot of us have had recently and your concerns. I bet that if you traced it back one way or another, that you have a concern that's particularly heightened because of how people and institutions may use certain things to exploit you. Maybe they're going to use politics to exploit you. Or maybe COVID-19 is just a cover to exploit you. This is why Supreme Court justices matter. This is why elections matter. Because there's the potential in all of these things that we could find ourselves exploited. People could be exploited by these decisions. And if the country continues to secularize at the rate that it happens, we may find ourselves more the targets of persecution and of exploitation. I mean, these are are real concerns, guys, that we need to start thinking about. But God helps us process these potential realities in this way. He gives us a vision past any injustice that we could experience in life. God gives us a picture of how the world is going to end. And no matter what form of affliction or suffering or pain that we may face, God promises justice. He will hold people account. Now these three woes support this reality because if you actually look at them together, they make the argument that whatever shape, size, form, and justice comes in, that justice will find it out. Remember Habakkuk 2, 6 through 8 says it's this massive group of people. In Habakkuk 2, 9 through 11, it's this individual. In Habakkuk 2, 12 through 14, it's this city. So we may find ourselves face to face with lots of different sizes and shapes of people who want to do harm to us, right? We may find ourselves face to face with a giant institution standing on our own. I think about what, what, what Chike just started recently with a case going before the Supreme Court about religious liberty and, and speech. Or you may encounter people who are quite opportunistic that, hey, this cover, let's start exploiting people. Let's start exploiting churches. But this is God's point. No matter what form injustice may appear in, big, small, anywhere in between, one day God's justice will find it out. So as you think about your faith in the face of affliction, what do you fear? What may cause anger? What concerns you? What causes anxiety? No no matter what comes into your mind, if it involves people, God uses passages like this to remind us that he will be our avenger. He will vindicate us. He will deal with those who cause concern against us and threaten us. So, as we have faith in the face of affliction, we are called to trust him. Isaiah 40, 54, verse 17 reads, No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. So that's our first point. God promises to execute perfect justice against every act of injustice. Let me give you a second category. 
Christian, reassess your concerns by remembering God's promise to execute perfect justice against injustice and sin. Injustice and sin. Habakkuk 2, 15 through 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you, around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. And in this fourth woe, God addresses a very gross but very real reality that's facing the people of Judah. That people who have power over others sometimes engage in gross and humiliating and immoral activities with their captives. Here God, here God describes actually how captors would sometimes gloat their power. Captors would do this by forcing their captives into humiliating activities. Here God casts woes upon those who are made to drink in order to dull their senses and inhibitions. And then the captives would then force their captives to engage in immoral activity. Conquerors forcing their captives to engage in shameful acts. Why would they do this? Just to show their power and their greatness. And God wants to make this point abundantly clear to the righteous remnant of Judah that even if these acts occur against you, that justice will come. I think the best way to think about this passage as an argument from the greater to the lesser. So this is probably one of the greatest moral atrocities that one person could commit against another. But God is presenting this extreme case in order that he may put underneath that every other moral injustice someone may commit. So from the greater to the lesser, if God has his sights set on this one, this huge one, then his justice will extend over all forms of sin, whether murder or betrayal, slander, adultery, theft, or whatever someone may try to do against you. And here's essentially God's argument. Who, woe to those who seek to glorify themselves at the expense of others. For the suffering that you actually inflict upon someone else is going to come back upon you. In verse 16, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. And I think that this woe really helps us having faith in the face of affliction because this woe addresses one of the most common and challenging realities to having faith in the face of affliction. How do I trust a sovereign God who allowed terrible things to happen to me? Maybe you're here and you're still haunted by pain of betrayal 
maybe a violation, someone stabbing you in the back. Or maybe that's what haunts you. In the future, you have this, this worst-case scenario that keeps replaying in your mind. And maybe you're stuck on the fact that a few sermons ago, I said you needed to embrace the sovereign God who allowed that to happen. And you feel like if you really jump in, how is that justice? And sadly, the type of behavior that Habakkuk is describing here describes behavior that really happens in our world today. Sadly, more often we like to think. And just as one of the worst statistics out there, one in four women and one in, seven, one in six men will experience some level of intimate abuse in their lifetimes. And it's not like there's this bubble that's protecting churches from those statistics. So if you're struggling to have faith in the face of affliction, after experiencing some level of abuse on par to what Habakkuk has described here, or maybe it's something big or something small, it just is something that is, you're stuck on. How do you have faith? Well, we start with the promise that God makes here in this passage. If you are a Christian, God promises to execute perfect justice against those who harmed you and exploited you. If you look at what Scripture says here, if you were in a position where someone had power over you to take advantage of you because they were stronger or because they were older or because they had some level of authority, the blame and the responsibility lays with that person. The guilt in this passage lays on those who shame and exploit their victims for their own glory. And please know here that God sees what you've experienced. He sees it. And he gives us passages like this so that we would know that justice is coming. And God offers vindication to you and your justice if you come to him, if you give him your burdens, and if you trust him. And you really, if that's you today, you really need to trust God because the type of justice that you really want that this passage talks about, you just can't get on your own. Maybe you've tried. Maybe you've spent year after year pursuing sin or bitterness or anger or vengeance to make up for what, something did, what someone did to you. Maybe you've taken matters into your own hands. But if you're searching for peace, it's not going to come in those choices. You need to trust God with your cries and your pleas for justice. Because what you want is pictured here. And Christ promises to execute justice against you, against those who harmed you, if you come to him and if you trust him. Scripture also gives us the tools to help those who have harmed, been harmed and those who have been violated heal. The gospel promises life and resurrection to those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ. So if that's you today and you're grappling with something that's happened to you, please know that there are many people here and there are many resources that want to help you. And please let us know how we can. 
our fifth woe introduces a new dynamic into the passage. We've talked about God's promise to execute justice against every injustice and sin, but this woe is of a different kind. If you've suffered from injustice or sin in your life, this woe will bolster your confidence in these promises because God is personally invested in every sin and injustice on earth. To revisit our main idea. Christian, reassess your concerns by remembering God's promise to execute perfect justice against every act of injustice, sin, and idolatry. Idolatry. Verses 18 through 20. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Here, God goes after the heart of every sin and every injustice, which is idolatry. We may see the Babylonians pillaging and plundering and humiliating others, but God sees their hearts. He sees idolatry. He sees a covetous lust for power and for wealth. He sees their murderous desires. He sees their shameless thoughts. And he sees their delight in wickedness. And what are these Babylonians trusting in? What reality are they banking on? That the true God is a lie. That he doesn't exist. And their gods will save them. And God has a score to settle with these idolaters. We've talked about this reality last week, that behind every sin is some level of idolatry because every sin has to deny something about who God is and his existence, whether he's sovereign, whether that he's good, or that he's worthy of our worship, and it denies whether or not he will judge. So when Habakkuk sees the Babylonians shamelessly pillaging and plundering the people of Judah... These people are hoping that their gods will save them. But God sees the confession in their hearts. There is no God. No one will judge me. These Babylonians are trusting in their gods to save them. When people commit idolatry, they literally are hoping that metal or gold or created things will protect them on the last day. In verse 18, God says, For its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. What's the biggest problem facing the Babylonians? The biggest problem facing the people of Judah? Every sinner that perpetuates injustice, it's not some other raging army or a guy with a bigger stick. It's the fact that in every sin, God has been offended. His honor has been thrown down. His glory has been scoffed at. His existence has been denied. And his people have been desecrated. 
But, but why isn't God intervening now then? If this is the reality, if God sees these things and it's an offense against him, why isn't God doing anything? That was Habakkuk's original problem. God, you're idle. Sin goes unpunished. But wait, if God sees these things, what is he doing? Verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. What is God doing? He's waiting. This is the biggest gamble that every atheist and every idolater is, is trusting in. The fact that God doesn't exist or God doesn't prove that he exists by intervening in their lives whenever they commit sin and justice, they take that to mean that God doesn't exist. But there are many other reasons that are never considered. Mainly, God does exist, but he's just waiting. Well, what's God waiting for if he's not doing anything? He's waiting for your sins to accumulate so that he can judge you. God's, if God doesn't demonstrate himself to you, that doesn't mean that he doesn't exist. It's that he's just waiting, which should be a very scary thought for us. So how does this reality help us have faith? Because every act of injustice and sin is not just a sin against you. Every act of injustice and sin is an act of high treason against the king. And whenever pe people think that they can get away with harming you or exploiting you or persecuting you, they're also wagging their finger in God's face and saying, what are you going to do about it? Every act of sin and injustice is an act of idolatry. And how will God respond? With judgment to vindicate his name. Psalm 58, 10 through 11. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. So, friend, how can you have faith in the face of affliction. So remember the fact that any sin or act of injustice against you is also an attack on God. And if you are in Christ, he will vindicate you for his name's sake. And if this is the case, you can trust him. You can trust him as you face affliction, as you face pain, as you face trials, and as you face suffering. But as one other point, God has an, an intensely personal score to settle with humanity. And there is another reason why we really should trust that God is going to vindicate us. Because God not only has a score to settle because of things happen against us, God needs to vindicate his son. Because God's son became the victim of every injustice described in our text. If you think about it, Jesus suffered under the hands of two unjust institutions, the Roman legal system and the Jewish rulers of the day. And he was sentenced to death on, in a kangaroo court on trumped-up trials. 
There are many who profited off of Jesus' execution. The Jews, the Jewish leaders were really scared of losing all of their followers. Judas received money for Jesus' betrayal. The guards were literally fighting over Jesus' clothing. And the city of Jerusalem failed their king. Those who cried Hosanna in the highest now cried crucify. And outside the city gate, God's son was tortured, humiliated, and left to die hanging on a tree. And everyone who participated in this thought that they were safe. They thought justice was done. I mean, Jesus is dead, right? The movement's leader's now gone. The disciples are scattered. What do they have to fear? Who's going to hold them accountable now? And then Sunday came. And the tomb was open. And Jesus was out. And Jesus is now in his holy temple. And he has a score to settle. Not only with those who oversaw his unjust execution, but with this whole world system of sin, injustice, and the ruler of this world, Satan. This whole system is coming down. Where is Jesus? He's in his holy temple. And let all the earth keep silent before him. So God has a date set with every human institution, every sinner, and with every fallen city. On that day, every person will acknowledge their offenses before the King of Kings. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But at this point, there's another reality that we need to consider. There's a really important heart disposition that supports our faith in the face of affliction. At any time that someone commits a sin against us, we really must reassess our concerns. Because what's most important is not that that individual has sinned against us, but that individual has sinned against God. And from this point, we know that God is passionate about vindicating his glory and his own son. Which means that God will vindicate us, his people. And the main reason that we sometimes struggle to have faith in the face of affliction is that we mainly think about our trials and our suffering with reference to ourselves and not to God. We are more focused on how these things in life are going to hurt us, not offend God's glory. We are more focused on keeping ourselves safe, trying to keep our lives normal, than on pleasing God. But if I am the only focus of my suffering, justice is hopeless. If I focus on, my, on how my sins offend God, justice is certain. As you know, for all of us, this comes back to pride, doesn't it? Because when we fail to trust God in these moments, we're just trusting ourselves. And it's really easy to forget that we ourselves were once or still are sinners. And we were sinners outside of God. And if we're honest, we have all participated in different systems of injustice. We have participated in idolatry. As we fail to give glory to God, 
into created things. And yet God doesn't hold us accountable to these things. He placed all of our sins on Jesus. Christ gave us his righteousness, and at the cross he forgave every act of sin and injustice and idolatry that we ever committed. And this is a critical point, and it's missing in a lot of our conversations today about justice. It is only those who repent of their sins and trust in God who see the justice in this text. Because God may bring about short periods of temporary justice, but this group in Habakkuk 2, 6-20 includes those from among the nations who acknowledge God's existence and submit to him. Of all of these conquered nations, there are many who were offended, but then they just picked up the sword and smacked someone else. Their covetous desire fought against covetous desire. But of those of the nations that see this vision, those who witness God's justice know and confess the knowledge of the glory of God. So do you want to see justice for the wrongs in your life? Do you want to be vindicated? It only comes through you admitting your sins and you admitting your injustices and your idolatries. What injustices have I been part of? I'm part of this giant system. Well, if we're sinners, we're part of this cosmic rebellion, right? Remember we sang earlier? These systems put Jesus to death, but it was my sin that nailed him there until it was accomplished. And those who trust in Christ and want to see justice must live a life of faith in the face of affliction. We must trust God. We must believe his promises. And even if God allows us to suffer, we trust him. We confess that God is our God and that he is our salvation. And just as one more icing on the cake, because I love reasons to trust in God, you know, if you are concerned that God's going to vindicate you, if you believe in Christ, you're united to him by faith, and we bear his name. You guys remember what Jesus said to Saul when he was persecuting the church in Damascus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And God, if God judges those who persecute his son, if we are in Christ, he will judge them as well. So how do you have faith in the face of affliction? You reassess your concerns. If you are a Christian, whatever others may do to you because of your faith, God will execute justice. So he promises to rectify everything that happens to you in life. What do you do? What do you do when the storms come or the trials come or when you see injustice, right? It's still going to come, right? You look at his word and you look at your upcoming affliction. You bear your fears. You prepare your heart. You plant your feet. You take a deep breath and you bear affliction. You endure. You persevere. 
and you hold on to Christ. In each trial, in every sin, in in every injustice, you look to God. You tell him it hurts. You give him your concerns and your burdens. But then here's the big thing. You give him control of justice. And you protect your heart from sin, from bitterness, from anxiety, from worry, from anger. And in that moment, you may actually even have the faith and the strength to look back in the face of those who may insult you or those who injured you, those who took advantage of you. And you may smile. And you may even have the strength to say this. Woe to you, for Jesus Christ is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Let's pray. Father, we are silent before you. Father, if we're honest, many times when we face affliction, it's because we trust ourselves and we care more about ourselves than your glory. And we forget your promises in this word, in your word. And a great injustice would be, would happen today if we walk away from this and don't trust you. But Father, we need strength and we need faith. But may it come as we behold you are God. Father, there's some heavy things I talked about in this passage. May you comfort those and may these realities be true to us. Would you comfort the afflicted? Would you bind up the wounded? Father, would you give us faith as we face affliction? In Christ's name, amen.